This week on the show, we have the FreeBSD Foundation July newsletter read to you, a bunch of BSD Can trip reports as well. We have some updates on the Harden BSD Foundation uh, efforts, FreeBSD and OSPFD uh, tutorial with ZFS disk structure overview a little bit more into that and more Spectre mitigations in OpenBSD land in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 258, OS Foundations, recorded on the 8th of the 8th of 2018, which is 8th of, of course, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And it's going to be 8 o'clock before we're done because Benedict is screwing around. <laughs> and I'm Alan Jude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even if that will happen, um, we will still produce a nice episode for you this week uh, with Actual headlines, as always, starting with the FreeBSD Foundation update of July 2018 um, in a new format. So you can see it's a bit more shiny and uh, a little bit more designed, let's say. Um, it starts off with the message from the executive director, uh, Deb Goodkin, of course, um, doing a lot of uh, years service for the FreeBSD Foundation and uh, who's also going to conferences and people have met. Uh, but she writes, we're in the middle of summer here in Boulder, Colorado. While the days are typically hot, they can also be quite unpredictable. Thanks to the Rocky Mountains walking up 50 degrees, like uh, roughly 10 Celsius. Oh, wow. Foggy weather is not surprising. Uh, in spite of the unpredictable weather, many of us took some vacation this month. Yeah, so that's uh, vacation, holiday season. That's, of course, uh, happening to everyone. And uh, whether it was extending the 4th of July celebration, spending time with family, or relaxing and enjoying the summer rather, we appreciated our time off while still managing to accomplish a lot. In this newsletter, Glenn Barber enlightens us about the upcoming 12.0 release. Uh, she gave a recap of OzCon that Ed Mastin she attended uh, that we covered in last week's episode, if you watched that already. And Mark Johnston explains the work on his improved microcode loading project that we are funding. So... Uh, finally, Anne Dickinson gives us a rundown of upcoming events and information on submitting a talk for MeetBSD. So that's the uh, cover letter, basically, for the whole uh, newsletter. And starts off with June 2018 development projects update. Yeah, just a bit of background there. Uh, it starts off, modern CPUs rely on microcode to control many aspects of their behavior. And microcode updates may be provided by uh, system firmware, like the, the BIOS image or by the operating system to correct issues in the cpu uh, while in production or other improvements that come out later uh, freebsd has long supported runtime microcode loading uh, you know with the cpu control command you can update the microcode running on your cpu and you can just do that every time it boots up uh, although it can be somewhat cumbersome especially on a laptop if you suspend resume and maybe it forgets the microcode across that yeah it says uh Currently, a useLand tool makes use of a special kernel interface to inject this new microcode, uh, which has a couple of downsides, and they talk a bit about that uh, and how they're aiming to improve it. And Mark goes on to say, a patch implemented uh, or implementing early loading of Intel microcode updates is currently in review and awaiting feedback. So this will actually do it uh, much earlier in the boot process, um, and that will be much better. Uh, they say, we aim to uh, ensure that uh, new functionality will be available in time for FreeBSD 12 
and also plan to backport it to the FreeBSD 11 stable branch uh, so that it will be available as part of FreeBSD 11.3 when that comes out. Oh, yeah. Of course, there's always links to uh, full details, so if you dig even deeper than in this one, you can do that. Uh, we also have a fundraising update uh, with supporting the project. Uh, remember, the FreeBSD Foundation is always looking for uh, donations, and that goes into projects, travel grants, and other good things supporting the FreeBSD project. So um, we set our goal for, to 1250000 this year uh, in need to support the FreeBSD project. Uh, and we already reached halfway through of 2018 to that. So um, just another, the other half is still missing. But yeah, we're confident that we'll get this. Well, so, we're halfway through the year, but we're not halfway <laughs> through the, the donation target yet. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's important to know. So yeah, um, again, small donations or big donations are both welcome. So we couldn't even have begun to reach these goals without the support from the companies who have partnered with us this year. Thank you to NetApp, Microsoft, Tarsnap, VMware, and Neo Smart Technologies for showing your commitment to FreeBSD. And if you want to know the amount of their commitment, you can check out our donations page. So funding from commercial users like these and individual users like yourself help us continue our efforts of supporting critical areas of FreeBSD, such as improving the quality assurance, continuous integration, and automated testing with our full time software engineer having multiple software engineers on staff actually to quickly fix issues and make improvements to FreeBSD. Yes, making this came in very handy for the spectrum meltdown stuff and is oh, yeah. still ongoing in that area yeah so initially the plan was different uh, to work on other stuff but that came up and we're now back to <laughs> to slowly getting back to our original plan but yeah it's good to have yeah, people but, can uh, having it. people on staff under nda allows that to happen whereas in the older model the foundation worked under they would have to be like you know we can't tell you what you would be working on but we need you to bid on the contract and it gets doesn't really it's, work that way yeah it's kind of weird yeah so um Making improvements to the FreeBSD toolchain is also one of the goals that we um, help achieve with those donations. To implement security fixes and integrating performance, profiling, and tracing tools by adding another part-time software engineer, which we did. So another thing is keeping FreeBSD secure and reliable by having staff members fill the key leadership roles in the security and release engineering teams. So they have uh, begun this year. And, yeah, doing already good work. Sponsoring and attending more open source conferences around the world to promote FreeBSD and uh, recruit more contributors, users to FreeBSD, and actually talk to people about their needs and how they like the BSDs or the FreeBSD in general. And providing more training and educational materials. Yeah, that's what I'm involved with, but not alone. So this is an ongoing effort. Yeah, so then there's an, a release engineering update that they have. Um, which goes like this. The FreeBSD release engineering team sent a reminder email to the FreeBSD developers about the upcoming start of the 12.0 release cycle. Yes, the, the cycle has started, and uh, you can see when you can hopefully one day soon, someday, someday soon, download the new release, 12.0, but there's still some work um, needed for that. But the next major version release cycle is scheduled to begin the code slush on April, uh, August 11th, 2018. Oh, this is... Very soon, this week, mm -hmm. actually, uh, which is the point um, during which the release engineering team requests developers av avoid adding new features and work on outstanding known issues to polish things and uh, make it look good and work perfect. 
as much yes, as we can. Try to stop the rate of change so that we can catch up with making sure everything is is good. All, all working fine. Yeah. The major milestone of the 12.0 release cycle are available on the FreeBSD project website. So that's a separate link, and you can see where all these um, special dates will be when they cut release, uh, like release candidates or have some releases for, for testing. Uh, during the start of the 12.0 release cycle, the head branch will be renamed from current to alpha 1, which is not included in the release as the build schedule may be arbitrary and dependent on the state of the tree at the time. Following the alpha 1 build, each subsequent build will increment numerically until the stable 12 branch is created and the beta phase of the release cycle begins. And as always, we encourage testing of 12.0 current snapshot builds whenever possible, which are available in the snapshots directory of the FreeBSD project download site. They are basically available right now if you want to try your uh, yeah, PC on that. About once a week. Um, but yeah, 12 quite a big set of changes and it'd be very useful to get more people testing that as soon as possible because uh, it gets harder and harder to fix stuff as we get closer to the release because uh, we end up branch and we got to merge stuff and it takes time and then every time we change something it means we have to basically redo all the testing we've done to make sure we haven't caused more problems and so yeah. the sooner you can start beating it up the better exactly yeah and that's also have, uh, uh, their recap uh from fazda or sorry ozcon uh, we went through michael dexter's uh recap from that the other day um yeah so you can check that out if you're interested uh and they have a reminder uh submit your work meet bsd 2018 is a mixed conference unconference uh and it will be uh october 19th and 20th um but your call for papers must be submitted by midnight on august 12th um real soon hurry up and do that till the last minute please don't wait till the last minute you make my they make more work for me and i don't like it. come on <laughs> submit now now yep now have you done it yet yep we'll wait i, I, I didn't get an email make sure you do it <laughs> not yet <laughs> um there's another thing in the uh, newsletter about a freebsd discount for 2018 the SNEA storage developer uh, uh storage network industry association developer conference um they provide uh, with because we are a associate partner of the SNEA Storage Developer Conference, and um, which includes over 100 presentations on topics including NVMe, persistent memory, solid state, cloud object stores, uh, storage architecture, performance, and others. And they have a discount code available um, for FreeBSD community members. Uh, get $200 off of regular registration, and there's a registration link and a uh, SDC 18 free BSD uh, code that you have to use to get those 200% off. So yep. if that's and not something... That can be combined with the early bird special if you register before August 24th, uh, which gives you another $300 off for a total of $500 off. Yeah, see? If that's not something uh, if you uh, <laughs> want to go there and yeah, just by reading our newsletter you get these kinds of uh, goodies from time to time. Yes. Uh, and if you needed help getting to EuroBSDCon, uh, the travel grant deadline was yesterday. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, oops. Sorry. But yeah. It's been well, a promoted. We told you about it many travels. times. You just didn't listen. So yeah. it's your own fault. <laughs> you were behind on listening to BSD. But you'll remember for next time <laughs> to do that early. 
Yeah. So that's that's our way of uh, giving get people the chance to get to these conferences who could normally not go. And all that is uh, also uh, made possible through donations to the FreeBSD Foundation. All right. Speaking of travel. Uh, this week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by iX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com slash BSD Now uh, and check out their ebook on open source storage and find out how proprietary and cloud solutions fall short and why you should use on-premise open source storage solutions. Uh, also, why open source is a better development model for storage because you need your storage to be mobile, right? You have to be able to uh, get your data back out of the system and open source makes that a lot easier. Uh, they also talk about the advantages of using NVMe and NVDIMM uh, in combination with ZFS to for the various caching layers to get the highest possible performance out of your machine. Yep, and uh, IX folks can build you such a machine depending on what kind of use case it is for. Just tell them what this machine should do, maybe some storage or backup solution or file server, and IX will tell you what kind of uh, software will work well with their components they will put into you or in their system and what kind of uh, configuration they will build you, whether it's more CPU or uh, more main memory because ZFS requires that because most uh, IX storage is based on the ZFS. Yeah, but whether you need storage or compute or an entire rack of stuff for your hyperconverged data center, uh, get in touch with IX, tell them what you're looking to do, and uh, they'll help you design the right solution. Yeah, and they also sponsor a couple of conferences, Meet BSD, of course, that we just mentioned, but also others that are around the world, and that's their way of giving back. All right, uh, we mentioned travel already, uh, and uh, way back when BSD can happened, oh, it seems like yesterday when this conference ended, but um, trip reports are due from people who we sponsored, and they we collected a couple of them and are going to present them to you. So the first one is from actually my uh, associate or um, someone who I know, um, who went to BSD Can for his very first time, Constantin Stan from Ireland. I met him there for the first time and he introduced me to the uh, Dublin BSD user group. Small, but uh, they definitely uh, are engaged. And uh, so this is his uh, first actual BSD trip uh, to a conference. Actually, I think it's his very first BSD conference in the, for that regard. But he writes, I am proud I was among the 280 people who attended BSD Can 2018. This wouldn't have been possible without the support of the FreeBSD Foundation and those who accepted my travel grant. For this, I would like to thank the FreeBSD Foundation. Thank you for attending. And uh, uh, he's relatively new to BSD. He writes, I don't have a programming background, but I have interest in learning about BSD. I found the community to be more welcoming for most new users and the closest to my heart. I started uh, my journey in Dublin. I arrived Monday evening in Ottawa and got myself comfortable at the room booked in the U90. This is the residence, yeah. And the next day, I joined the Beastie crowd in Royal Oak Pub, where the goat buff happens. The first event of the schedule kicked off BSD Can. And for the first time, I met a group larger than five people who would talk about BSD. Oh, yeah. BSD Can kind of draws a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> and he was able to meet, shake hands, and talk to people who he knew from only BSD Now. What's that? Or YouTube. Okay, now see, it's nice to see people in person and uh, see how they really are when the cameras are off. 
Um. <laughs> so uh, he talks a bit about what he did uh, during the first couple of days with going to the tutorials uh, and getting out of those. And then it says on uh, June 8th, he has to mark the start of the submitted talks. And he went to Bob Beck's talk about the forthcoming pledge and unveil uh, subsystems in OpenBSD. Uh, he was impressed at how much effort is directed at TrueOS, the BSD desktop as well. Uh, Project Trident and its uh, collaboration between TrueOS and GhostBSD looks promising for the desktop world. And then he went to Michael Lucas's tutorial about SSH key management. Uh, oh yeah. He was familiar with that as something he would like to use at work. Uh, he also went to Kirk McCusick's talk about the evolution of BSD government. And then, obviously, Dan Langill's closing session that marked the end of BSDCAN 2018. Uh, he says, before this conference, BSD was more of a light and passive hobby for me, but not anymore. BSDCAN was the, the kick and the catalyst I needed uh, to become serious and dedicated to learn and use more BSD. Excellent. Seeing how many people contribute to BSD projects made me want to do this too. I decided to help, and Warren Block took his time to help me set up my laptop to be able to start writing documentation. Uh, since this was my first BSD conference, I felt shy during the conference, but I really hoped to become a regular. Uh, the tutorials were really helpful uh, as a starting point, discovering BSD and learning how to do things. Uh, and they included hands-on labs, uh, not just lectures. Uh, at the next BSD conference, I plan to join as many tutorials as possible. <laughs> oh, uh, Since returning home, I've uh, shared my experience with my friends and some of the other people uh, at the BSD user group uh, and hope more of them will be interested in joining as well. Uh, while there, he also got one of Michael Lucas's books uh, during the auction, and I'm looking forward to bringing it back uh, for BSD Can 2019 and trying to auction it off. Ah, see? Uh, Excellent. So thanks to the FreeBSD Foundation for allowing them to attend this event. Yeah, hopefully it won't be the last, and uh, yeah, keep the, uh, the Irish BSD folks, uh, at least in Dublin, engaged. All right, uh, the next uh, report that we have is from Danilo Bayo. Uh, let's see. Oh, that's a bit longer one, but yeah, not bad. Um, so he arrived in Ottawa uh, the afternoon of June 5th. First thing he had to do was find uh, <laughs> pay for the bus fare. To do so, he searched the airport for a gift. Uh, knowing he needed exactly uh, 3.50 <laughs> Canadian dollars to pay the bus to the Ottawa University. Finally, he headed to the bus stop. Okay, to get to the bus stop, he had to ask for directions. What bus to take? And how would I know when I arrived at the university? A kind man informed him to take bus 97 and stop at the Laurier station. He made it sound easy. Uh, oh, apparently... Then he noticed ah, someone with a BSD can t-shirt holding a $20 bill that he knew wouldn't be accepted and asked if he had changed. Luckily, uh, they had more coins inside the bus. The man didn't accept their money. When the bus arrived, the same man that gave him instructions on how to go to the university, paid for bus tickets, and gave them a receipt. Welcome to Canada. Oh, yeah. Nice people all around. That's a perfect introduction yeah, to the country. Um, then once he made it to the university, he checked it at the desk and asked for directions to find a oh, royal oak. Actually, about that, though. Pro tip. Yeah. There's a desk just inside the airport where you can buy the, a paper ticket for the bus, and they'll give you change. So you don't have to try to you know, buy a gift to get the right amount of change or anything. You can, there's there's a, a desk inside the airport where you can buy a, a paper ticket with your $20 bill and, and, and get change. But anyway. Yep. 
yeah, might be helpful for next year. Yeah, for uh, knowledge sharing here. Um, so he, the next day, actually, was after the Royal Oak, of course, the Dev Summit began, and he attended an entire talk of uh, days of talk before joining the OpenRC Working Group with Warren Block and the group of IX folks. Uh, on the second day, the Dev Summit, he met Drew Levine, who informed him there was not a Brazilian there, William Gritsipovsky. Or Kritzibov, I don't know. Uh, William was uh, has worked with FreeBSD for a long time and lives in the city near where he lives. Actually, wow, see? Later, he met uh, other Brazilians, Luis Souza and Renato uh, Botello, uh, who was his mentor, actually. Oh, wow. See? That's how he yeah, met it's, your... It's interesting that someone lives not all that far from you, and when you see them is when you both fly to some faraway country <laughs> uh, to go to the same conference. You're uh, just down the road. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This happens with me and Ed a lot. Uh, Ed and I live about forty-five minutes apart, probably. Uh, but usually, we meet when we both drive forty-five minutes uh, to the airport, <laughs> uh, or we miss each other at the airport and see each other, you know, in Tokyo or Europe or <laughs> California, and it's like, hmm, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he writes, uh, they have uh, talked, of course, uh, online all the time, and it was a pleasure to meet them and the others in person. So BSD Ken, he followed uh, the Ben Rice talk, the, the keynote tragedy of Risk System D. Um, then there was a, uh, Devin Teske's talk about DWatch. Um, then the next talk, oh, then he went to the Doc Lounge, actually. Also, good to have that, listening yes, to our blog share. Uh, great thing that we do at BSD Can is the Doc Lounge, where a bunch of the documentation committers hang out somewhere uh, and invite new people to come by and get started and get help with getting their first couple of uh, doc changes committed and helps people, you know. The process is a lot easier if there's someone standing near you that you can ask for help and, and look things over quickly. You know, if you get the uh, if you get feedback right away, rather than all right, I, I wrote some things, I sent an email, and the person's in Europe, so they've already gone to bed, so maybe tomorrow they'll have replied. Uh, whereas, you know, when you get that feedback within a minute by being in the same room with the people, it can make getting to the first bit of that a lot faster. Okay, yeah, definitely a good good way of contributing. Um, yeah, yeah like they say, that uh, never Warner provided some good tips, uh, like anticipating the user's questions and how to write a good man page uh, using three different examples. Uh, so this was my first BSD can. Thank you to the FreeBSD Foundation for the opportunity, and I hope to share uh, with the community what I've learned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, excellent. Then we have another trip report from Rodrigo Osario who says he wants to thank the FreeBSD Foundation uh, for sponsoring his trip to BSD CAN, which took place in Ottawa, Canada. The conference was both my first BSD event outside of Europe and my first trip to Canada. Uh, before the conference, I attended the FreeBSD Dev Summit, which I was able to meet uh, many other FreeBSD developers. <clears throat> On the first day, uh, Rodrigo attended the Clearing Deadwood session, which is a working group on... Uh, working on a deprecation policy and cleaning up a lot of uh, old code that is accumulated. Um, he says he took part in the discussion about driver deprecation in the source tree. Uh, later, he also attended Warren Block's presentation about OpenRC, one of the alternatives to the current uh, Runcom system in FreeBSD, and saw the progress done by TrueOS and how that was integrated. 
After that, uh, Rodrigo's wife and he uh, joined the other FreeBSD developers at the Smoke Shack and had some poutine, which he found to be amazing. Yeah, uh, I was with them. And then they went for <laughs> beaver tails for dessert. So they got quite the Canadian experience there. Yeah, I was with them and it was like, I need a beaver tail tonight. And he was like, what is that? I didn't and actually I'll show you. I'll show you. <laughs> at all this year. Um, a combination of timing and too much gelato. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's another thing that we do regularly there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so finally, uh, they reached the Hacker Lounge and saw an impromptu presentation uh, by Devin Teske about the way she monitors uh, disk health on servers. Um, during the second day, uh, Rodrigo attended the Sec Team update and saw the discussion about um, how FreeBSD is handling the uh, speculative execution vulnerabilities and also um, case examples, uh, case studies of both the best and not best um, vulnerability responses that we've had lately and uh, how we can try to have more of them lean towards uh, that uh, the processor debug one that was um, coordinated by Microsoft Research. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, then the discussion changed over to the FreeBSD 12 action list. Instead of the traditional have, need, want um, session, we focused on what are the things we need to get finished in time for 12 uh, and assigning who's actually going to work on those. And they say, uh, after lunch, we took the traditional uh, group picture in front of Tabaret Hall. So we all stood up on the, the stairs of uh, one of the university buildings and did some group shots. It was uh, similar to... The one you see behind me here. Yeah, excellent. Um, that's there, one from yeah. two years ago. Um, uh, in the afternoon, he attended the transport uh, working group where they talked about two new TCP stacks being brought into FreeBSD's pluggable TCP stack system. The first one is called Rack, uh, which is, uh, and the second one is BBR, and which are both actually uh, being sponsored by Netflix because uh, they provide advantages for different types of flows i think rack is the one um where for a lot of types of video streaming the connection now is not constant uh you basically open the connection you download a bunch of video you get buffered ahead of where you're playing by a couple of minutes and then the connection kind of rests until you've used up a bunch of that buffer and then it downloads some more uh instead of trickling the whole time um but a traditional TCP stack can uh, start to have a bad estimate of the round-trip latency between the two hosts when you stop sending enough data for a long time. Uh, so Rack is designed to mitigate that and cause uh, you not to have this. When you first start trying to send data again, you can get a much worse speed until the um, you have enough round-trip packets going back and forth to improve your estimate. Anyway, uh-huh. you can research more about that outside of this. Um, during BSDCAN, uh, he also had the opportunity to talk with uh, Emmanuel Vado about some issues he found with the latest Raspberry Pi 3 snapshots uh, when connecting to serial devices, and uh, with Romain about a side project he did involving an unexpected conflicts in ports. So uh, Rodrigo has done a project uh, called Package-Provides, uh, which allows you to search for the file that you're missing and find out which packages provide it, uh, or which package 
provides it. And as part of building that database, he found that there are some files that are actually provided by two different packages, which means if you try to install both of those at the same time, you will end up having trouble. Uh, so using his project to try to solve that. Uh, and also it detects undeclared and most of the time unexpected conflicts between ports uh, who share files. He also took the opportunity to advocate the BSD dev room at FOSDEM, uh, making sure that more people know about it and that we can get enough talks to have the whole day blocked off for it again uh, next year. Yeah, Rodrigo is organizing that. Thanks yeah. for that. Uh, and uh, he says, the trip to BSDKM was excellent, and I came back with an extended to-do list. Again, <laughs> I really appreciate the FreeBSD Foundation for helping make this all possible. Yeah, thanks for uh, coming over and... Uh enjoying the conference. Okay, another report is from Dananjay Balan uh, that goes with the sponsorship of the FreeBSD Foundation. I had the good fortune of attending BSDCAN 2018. Uh, I have been a happy user of FreeBSD for quite some time. All of my personal infrastructure runs on FreeBSD, including my laptop. When I found that the software I use was missing from ports, I began to contribute back by maintaining these ports. Excellent, that's the spirit. Uh, BSDCAN is the second BSD conference he has attended since EuroBSDCon 2017. Uh, he knew the conference was going to be good, uh, but was also looking forward to learning more about the community that builds and tends to the FreeBSD operating system. So after some initial hiccups, uh, he was able to obtain a visa for Canada and arrived in Ottawa on the 5th of June. Uh, that was the first time he attended the Dev Summit. Thank you, Philip, for inviting me. Uh, the presentations were informative, but the core updates stood out to me. After the talks, Dev Summit participants split into working groups, more or less focused discussions about the specific proposed topic, and he attended the Clearing Deadwood session, a working group that cleaned up some old bits from the code. The discussions were very specific, and some didn't make any sense to me. That's normal. That's that's okay. That's high level. You get into it. It's Pretty much the same for everyone. Uh, <laughs> he was very impressed by the discussions. Everyone listened to all sides and arguments were very concise and to the point. I believe the BSD conferences usually set the bar high in quality. I was not disappointed by BSD CAN 2018. The opening keynote, The Tragedy of System D, was quite thought-provoking. Uh, with other talks that stood out to him included OpenBSD on X-Ray Machines, pre presented by Henning Brower, and Running Linux Applications on FreeBSD, presented by Chuck Tuffley. Uh, with this last presentation, discussed the implementation of the Linux Elator and detailed the Quirks post as a personal journey, uh, which he felt in, it delivered more than the title implied, BST can style. A lot of time was also spent during the hallway track. I also put a lot of faces to the IRC nicknames and mailing list names. Yes, that's why you go to conferences, one of the reasons. And sufficient amount of time was also spent socializing and having drinks. So he's very grateful to the foundation for sponsoring his trip. I have a better understanding now how the project works and what workflows are used to get a uh, change accepted. Between beer and the hallway tracks, I got most of my questions about FreeBSD answered. Uh, they were very helpful in moving forward with some of the software he wanted to add to ports. Great. Yeah. Seems like you enjoyed the conference. And it's interesting to read that uh, the same impressions happen not just for yourself, but for other people. And... Uh, you know, how sometimes you cannot follow the discussions or how how very uh, quality-oriented everything is. It's, yeah, it's the same impression that most people get. Okay, last but not least is Kyle Evans with his trip report. Um, yep. uh, so Kyle says, the FreeBSD Foundation kindly sponsored my trip to BSDCAN 2018 uh, that took place 
uh, June 6th through the 9th. I was able to attend both the FreeBSD Developer Summit as well as the conference proper and met many of uh, the people that he's worked with along the way. I'm incredibly grateful for having made this, uh, had this opportunity. He says, uh, before even arriving in Ottawa, he ended up meeting up with Sean Bruno at uh, LaGuardia in New York at the airport, my final stop before arriving in Ottawa. I had also run into Romain Tartier uh, on the flight as well, but didn't actually know who it was until later on. <laughs> it's always interesting when you see somebody. Um, that guy, like, that one. Do I break them? <laughs> or or you know, when you meet someone at a conference, like, oh, you were like two rows in front of me on the airplane. I think it was my... When you go back, you you know all these people then, then continue yeah, the discussion. On the way home from Poland, I think it was, EuroBSDCon 2012, um, the guy, when I was getting into my seat, I think the guy uh, across the aisle, one row forward of me, I was like, I'm pretty sure I recognize that guy from the conference, but I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, a little bit into the flight when he pulls out uh, a laptop and it's obviously covered in terminal windows and not you know, uh, <laughs> a, a graphical interface. I'm like, yep. Uh, and uh, we ended up talking a bit and, uh, and so on. Anyway, yep. uh, going on. Uh, Kyle says uh, he also met Justin Hibbets, Emmanuel Vadeau, Baptiste Dresson, Jonathan Looney, uh, Li Wen Su, and uh, Laris Maxwell of NetApp early on the first day at the Dev Summit, uh, which then opened with the core update and the release engineering presentation. I found both of these talks to be interesting as I recently become part of the project uh, earlier this year. The insight into situations that Core 9 has dealt with and the unfinished business that Core 10 will be dealing with provided me with more background for the upcoming voting session. Uh, release engineering's presentation was rather good, but I found their clarification of the support lifecycle to be the most helpful. I spent this afternoon's session hacking on the Lua loader, uh, the patch to match some upcoming features uh, in the fourth loader so that they would have parity again, and working on some other concepts uh, like his BSD grep work to make that a bit more efficient. Uh, time at the hacker lounge was spent uh, looking at replacing the regex uh, in the base system with the one from Onigmo uh, and meeting with other conference attendees, initially uh, meeting Ed Mast and Gordon Tetlow while sitting at a table just inside the hacker lounge. And we uh, were discussing BSD grip, the Lua loader, and uh, things like that. Later on, he met Rod Grimes and they discussed the intricacies of merging uh, a few procedures that are currently uh, not going so well and things we want to correct along with some bootloader issues he's experienced lately uh, since he has such a wide selection of different hardware. Mm -hmm. uh, day two of the Dev Summit had a sec team update and a different version of the Havni Vaunt sessions uh, focused on FreeBSD 12 and led by John Baldwin, consisting of discussing mostly what we're trying to land in the next two months uh, to meet the feature freeze uh, for 12.0. Uh, followed by some discussion on things we started uh, targeting with 13.0. Uh, it was definitely an experience, uh, topics being listed left and right, and understanding uh, that we've certainly still got plenty on our plate to accomplish in time for 13, let alone <laughs> accomplishing in time for 12. Uh, both reminders, uh, the work is will surely never be finished. The highlights of the second day's afternoon was the boot code working group, 
we discussed transition plans uh, for switching to the Lua loader, which I spent plenty of time uh, getting into shape. We also discussed uh, the future direction and recapped the different limitations of the different stages of the boot system. Uh, this was also the point where I met Warner Losh, whom I've uh, conversed with and collaborated with at uh, to great extent with the Lua Loader project and other UFI-related shenanigans uh, at the hackathon on the second night. He also met uh, Christoph Provost uh, and then later Brian Drury, Ryan Libby, and Mark Johnson and observed as they discussed a VFS assertion that Justin Hibbets was encountering on his Power 9 Talos box. Uh, the conference proper was a great experience, and he attended uh, a whole list of talks here. He says, many of the talks I attended gave a glimpse of future work, uh, especially in the case of the public key trust infrastructure, and uh, Simon's talk about the very exact kernel verification, so on. Um, Colin's talk on profiling the kernel boot certainly made me more aware of things that are uh, affecting the boot time and uh, that we really should be putting more effort into uh, quantifying the effects and making sure we're operating as efficiently as we can. The hallway track was perhaps the uh, least expected part of the conference that I enjoyed. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I missed a couple of sessions because I was in the middle of conversations that were too good to walk away from. Uh, during the hallway track, you also... Uh, Met a group working on TrueOS, including um, Chris Moore and Nick Wolf, uh, and confirmed that they should be okay to start using the Lua loader in TrueOS as well. After receiving a complaint about uh, loader.conf overlays, setting the boot underscore mute flag, and uh, a bunch of other fun things in the process, he also uh, met John Baldwin, Brad Davis, uh, Ravi Pokala, uh, and Alexander Sideropoulos of NetApp in the hallway track. Uh, attending BSDCAN was an amazing experience, met with many people uh, who I've only collaborated with via email or IRC, and also had a chance to discuss future plans and observe the group uh, discussions at BSDCAN's equivalent of the Have Need Want session. I am incredibly grateful that the FreeBSD Foundation was willing to cover my travel expenses and allow me to attend the conference. Yeah, so that's one How of the reasons why... did my name get left off the list of people this. we met? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so thanks everyone for writing these and um, it was also great meeting you because mm -hmm. we, we had the chance to meet you because otherwise you wouldn't uh, be at the conference and yeah, see you next time So, time for News Roundup this week we've got sent uh, a nice blog post or actually a tutorial about FreeBSD and OSPFD by uh, Ryan Harashak, which we meet at a met at Asia BSDCon, who was at my tutorials, uh, and yeah, it was a great experience meeting him. And he wrote us a nice tutorial, and that's on his blog uh, about OSPFD. Uh, with FreeBSD jails deployed around the world, static routing was getting a bit out of hand. Plus, when he needed to move a jail from one data center to another, he would have to update routing tables across multiple sites. Not ideal. Either enter dynamic routing. The OSPF, Open Shortest Path First, is an internal dynamic routing protocol that provides the autonomy that I need, and it's fairly easy to set up. So this article does not cover configuration of VPN links, ZFS, or FreeBSD jails. However, it's recommended that you use ZFS datasets per jail so that migration between hosts can be done with ZFS send and receive. Yes, that's so much easier. Like literally snapshot it while it's running, replicate that, 
that might take even a day or more, depending on how much data it is and how fast the link is. Uh, but then when that's done, you snapshot it again into an incremental replication and get caught up until you got your delay uh, between the primary and the backup down to just a, a minute or two, if possible, or as short as possible. Then you can stop the service, one more snapshot, replicate that, uh, and then start it up on the other side, and you've got, you know, downtime of usually less than a minute, um, possibly even faster, and you have absolute perfect data integrity. Uh, yep. And um, if something goes wrong, or if it was just temporary, it means you can snapshot on the other side and send just the changes back to the original host. Uh, since exactly, it still has yep. the copy up to the minute when you switch hosts, it means you can also move it back with just incrementals. Uh, so especially for temporary maintenance, like for example, maybe they're going to turn the power off at your house to install some new circuits. Uh, Who would do then, that? <laughs> and then once they're done, you're going to want to move the jails back to your house. Uh, well, this way you only have to replicate the one day of, of missing data. Yep. Uh, Things like anyway, that are possible. After that aside, we'll get back to the story. Yeah, Ryan is talking more about networking. Um, in this scenario, we have five FreeBSD servers in two different data centers. So you can see a little uh, uh, depiction here. Nice diagram. Yep. Uh, each physical server runs anywhere between three to ten jails. Uh, when jails are deployed, they are assigned a slash thirty-two IP on the loopback number two, so LO zero, uh, two, sorry, LO two. From there, PF handles inbound port forwarding and outbound NAT. Links between each server are provided by OpenVPN tab interfaces, and uh, he uses tab to pass layer 2 traffic. It seems to remember that he needs uh, tab interfaces due to needing the GRE tunnels on top of TUN interfaces to get OSPF to communicate. And he's heard that tab is slower than TUN, so he may revisit this. But that aside, uh, in this example, uh, they will use a certain IP address range uh, for OpenVPN P2P links and... Um, Different one. So this is the first range is 172.16.2.0, and the second one is 172.16.3, as the range of IPs available for assigning uh, each to a jail. Previously, when deploying a jail, he assigned IPs based on the following groups. So he has uh, the five server groups, and each one has their uh, IP address segment. When statically routing, this made routing tables a bit smaller and easier to manage. However, when he needs to migrate a jail to a new host, he had to add a new slash 32 to all routing tables. Now, with OSPF, this is no longer an issue, nor is it required. So to get started, uh, first they, he installed the Quagga package, package install Quagga, nice and easy. This installed the Zebra core routing daemon along with the, some uh, more popular dynamic routing protocols, OSPF, BGP, RIP, and ISIS. Uh, the two configuration files needed to get OSPF version 2 running are Quagga, uh, yeah, use a local etc, quaggazebra.conf and Quagga OSPFD.conf. And starting with Zebra, he'll define the hostname and management password there. So, of course, this is not the real password, but just for example. And then, second, you will populate the OSPFD config file with your host names and the interfaces, the tab 1 to tab 5 that you have, as well as your router OSPF passive, and you can find the uh, links in our show notes, of course, for the details. Again, uh, modifying the 
hostname and the router ID for each server. The interfaces should also reflect the local system's interface names, but if the interface does not exist, it will ignore. And this allows you to use roughly the same configuration file on all hosts to have consistency. Uh, so then he breaks down a little bit more of the config sections. Uh, but at this point, we can enable the service in rc.conf local and start them. So, of course, you use sysrc for that. Excellent. And you start the Quagga service. Then we bind the management interface to the local host. So this is 172.0.0.1. So it's only accessible to local Telnet sessions. Wait, Telnet? Yeah. If you want to access the service remotely, you can bind a remotely accessible IP. Remember, Telnet is not secure. Not secure is Telnet. If you need remote access, use a VPN. To manage the services, you can tell that to your host local host address and use port 2601 to the Zebra core and use 2604 for the OSPF service. And remember, this is accessible by non-root users, so set a good password. Yeah, so even when you restrict it to local host, that means anybody on the machine can still connect to it. Uh, yep, and he provides a bit more, but this is enough for now. People who are interested in setting this up, they can find all the information in Ryan's blog here. And there's more on other BSD topics, but for now, we cover only this. <laughs> so yeah, thanks uh, for that. Thank you very much for writing this and sending it in. Yep, and the next one is a broad overview of how ZFS is structured on disk, which is Alan going to take. Yes, uh, so uh, kind of related to the one we talked about uh, the other week here from Chris Seibenman's blog. Uh, it was about um, how ZFS deals with hard links and uh, turning uh, object numbers into file names. Uh, but this kind of gets back to our broader overview of how ZFS is actually storing things on disk. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, so he says, as he wrote in a previous entry, it became clear that I didn't understand as much uh, about how ZFS is actually storing things on disk uh, as I thought. Uh, so today I went right down some of my broad understandings of how this works. This is, all of this can be dug out of the old draft of the ZFS on disk format specification, but that spec was written uh, very detailed ways and things are not always immediately clear from just glossing over it. Uh, almost everything in ZFS is in DMU objects. Uh, DMU stands for Data Management Unit, and it's uh, the DMU is full of objects, and those objects are the blocks on disk, whether they be for Zevo or files or whatever. Um, all objects are defined by a D node, uh, and object D nodes are almost always grouped together into an object set, um, which is like a data set. Um, Object sets are themselves DMU objects, and they store D nodes as basically a giant array uh, in that object, uh, which uses data blocks and indirect blocks, which then point to indirect blocks or data blocks and so on, uh, just like everything else. Uh, within this single object set, D nodes have an object number, which is the index uh, as their position in the object set of uh, arrays of D nodes. Okay. Because an object number is just the index of the object's D node in its object set's array of D nodes, <laughs> object <laughs> numbers are basically always going to be duplicated between object sets. So if you have two different data sets, each one of them is going to contain an object number 10. Uh, for instance, pretty much every object set is going to have objects uh, with certain numbers. Uh, 
although not all object sets may have enough objects in them to reach a certain number, like say 10,000. One uh, corollary to this is that if you ask ZDB to tell you about a given object number, you have to tell ZDB which object set you're talking about, um, since you know there will be a hundred object number tens in your pool. Uh, so usually you do this by telling it the file system or data set that you're talking about. So each ZFS file system has its own object set uh, for objects and that's denotes used in the file system. Uh, as he pointed out in another post, every ZFS file system has a directory hierarchy and may go many levels deep, but all of this uh, directory hierarchy refers to directories and files by using their object numbers, uh, meaning that it's easy to uh, find things. Uh, ZFS organizes and keeps track of file systems, clones, and snapshots through the DSL, or Dataset and Snapshot layer. The DSL has all sorts of things, like DSL directories, DSL datasets, snapshots, and so on, all of which are objects and many of which refer to object sets. For example, every ZFS file system must refer to its current object set somehow. All of these objects are themselves stored as denodes in their parent object. Uh, and up to the very top, where you have the meta object set, or MOS, that's the very top level of uh, the ZFS tree. Uh, and that's the meta object set is what the Uber block points to. So everything in ZFS is a bunch of data that's pointed to by an upper level object that has the checksum of the data it points to, all the way up to the MOS. Um, but the MOS is pointed to by an Uber block, which is slightly different, um, because at the on each disk there's a, a ring buffer of uber blocks um, and you just keep overwriting the oldest one as you update and you just keep going around in a circle um, and that points to the the most up-to-date moss block right because again the moss isn't going to be overwritten uh, because zfs is uh, copy on write instead of modify in place uh -huh. um, so when you boot up ZFS looks at the ring of uberblocks, finds the newest one, and tries it. If the checksum of the MOS doesn't match, it means, hey, that MOS must have been still in the process of being written when the power went out or whatever. So let's go back one uberblock before. So it would be one transaction earlier um, and check that one. And it finds uh, the one that is all good and boots it. Okay. Anyway, uh, so the DSL uh, directory and data sets are your pool set of file systems, and they form a tree, which file systems, uh, uh, since each file system has a DSL directory and at least one DSL data set. However, just like in ZFS, file systems, all of the objects uh, in this second tree refer to each other indirectly by their ob uh, MOS object number. Just as uh, with files in ZFS file system, this level of indirection limits the amount of copy and write updates that ZFS has to do when something changes. Because we just point to an object by its number, when we change that object, um, we rewrite it, but we don't have to modify the block that points to it, because we pointed to it by its number, not by an address that will have changed. And that's why ZFS does it that way. So that every time you modify a file, you don't have to go and find every thing that points to it and update the, its location. 
Uh, Makes sense. If you yeah. want to examine a MOS object, you can use the ZDB command. Um, I think you can do this with uh, ZDB dash VVV and then dash D for dataset. Specify the more times, the more Ds you put, the more verbose it'll be. Then you put the uh, pool name or dataset name and then the object number. Uh, object number one is the MOS. Uh, if you want to ask ZDB about uh, an object in the pool's root file system, Again, you can do um, put a slash on the end of the dataset name or the pool name, and that'll make it the root of that pool rather than the pool itself. Uh, you can tell which one you're uh, getting depending on what how ZDB prints it out. If it says dataset moss meta, you're looking at an object from the moss. If it says dataset and then the dataset name, and this is ZPL for ZFS POSIX layer, uh, then you're looking at a file system. Uh, he says, I was going to write up uh, what changed on a file system write, but then I realized that I didn't know how blocks being allocated and freed are reflected in pool structures. So I'll just say that I think that ignoring free space management, only four DMU objects get updated, the file itself, the file system's object, the file system's DSL object, and the MOS. As usual, doing the research to write this up taught me more things that I didn't know about ZFS. Hmm. So in addition to learning some stuff while doing the research, you also extended the list of things you don't know. What question came up. But at least the stuff that you discovered gave us some insight into how ZFS works. Yep. Okay. Very nice. Then, uh, as our uh, next so topic... This we week's have an... episode of BSD Now is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Uh, head over to... If you go to do.co slash bsdnow, you can get a $100 credit uh, to try out DigitalOcean for 60 days. This deal is probably not going to last much longer because they can't just hand out $100 to anybody forever. So I would recommend you hurry up and try that. Uh, yep. And they send out a newsletter of what's new. They come up with some interesting stuff. Uh, they have now load balancers with Let's Encrypt and HTTP slash 2. Yep. Virtual private cloud available uh, started in July as well as uh, volumes like block storage. Uh, they are now available in all regions and burstable IOPS performance. So we made, uh, they write, we made some backend upgrades to reduce cluster latency by 50% and enabled burst support up to 10K IOPS, giving you higher performance for spiky workloads, as well as auto mount right. and format volumes. Uh, DigitalOcean Spaces also got some updates. They're now available in Singapore and Amsterdam. Uh, they got some UI controls for cross-origin resource sharing and performance and reliability improvements as well. And in their compute uh, section, with the, yeah, they have some new standard and optimized drop droplets for just compute-intensive uh, workloads. Um, they recently introduced the 192-gigabyte RAM 32V CPU standard droplet to the lineup for 960 per month. Nice. Um, and I think out of all of that, the most interesting one is the load balancer that automatically does the let's group for you. It seems super easy. Yeah, definitely. So good time to check out DigitalOcean's offering, even if you have been using DigitalOcean for a while because you see regular updates and some new shiny things you can try out. Um, but even if you only start off with a single droplet, it has a lot of things that you can already do. 
And if you don't know actually what to do with your droplet, check out the community sections, which has a bunch of tutorials for you to try out. Uh, they're not only written exclusively uh, for DigitalOcean, but they can also be used uh, in other scenarios like um, how to create a, let's see, multi-node MySQL cluster, for example. Yeah. Um, I, I started with just one droplet, and now I have like five. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of addictive, and it's nice to see, oh, if I can run one droplet, let's run two and let them talk to each other and like make a client-server application or something. Or if you just want to run your blog on that one, they have WordPress uh, pre-install applications with one click. You can uh, initiate one of those droplets and just uh, start blogging. Yep. Okay. So, uh, DigitalOcean.com uh, and use the coupon code FreeBSD now or hurry up and take advantage of the limited time offer do.co slash BSD now and you get a $100 credit for 60 days. Yep, exactly. Okay, uh, we got some updates from the HeartBSD Foundation about their uh, efforts to become actually a foundation. So on July 9th, they write on HeartBSD.org, uh, the HeartBSD Foundation Board of Directors held a kickoff meeting to start organizing the foundation. Uh, the following people attended the kickoff meeting, Sean Webb in person, uh, George Seiler, uh, Ben Welch, Virginia Suidan, Ben LaMonica, uh, Dean Freeman, Christian Severt, so D7, a couple of them in person, a couple of them via phone. But they discussed the very first step that they need to take to organize the Harden BST Foundation as a 501c3 for nonprofit uh, organization to be accepted in the United States. We uh, confirmed, they write, that they could file a 1023EZ, that's just another form, <laughs> instead of the full blown 10203. This will help speed the process up drastically, and the steps are laid out as follows. You register a post office box. Um, that's what they already did, which, which was probably the easiest part. Uh, then they had to register the Harden BSD Foundation as a tax-exempt non-stock corporation in the state of Maryland. Uh, that started on 10th of July and was granted on the 20th of July. Uh, then they obtained a federal tax ID uh, on the 20th of July, closed the current bank account and created a new one using the federal tax ID that they now have, then file the paperwork for the federal government and hire an attorney to help draft the organization bylaws, you know, to conform with the regulations. So each of these steps must be done serially and in order. Uh, we added Christian Siever, Severt, they write, who is an Emerald Onions uh, board of directors to the Harden BSD Foundation board of directors as, as an advisor, uh, which has uh, fun. He has been foundational in getting Emerald Onion their 501c3 tax exempt status and has uh, some really good insights. Additionally, he's going to help HardenBSD coordinate hosting services, figuring out the best deals for us, and uh, so on. Uh, they promoted George Saylor to vice president and charged uh, Sean Webb's title. Uh, oh, yeah, ch changed Sean Webb's title, sorry. Changed that to president and director. Uh, this is to help uh, resolve the potential concerns both the state and federal agencies might have with organization having only a single president role. And they hope to be granted the 501c3 status before the end of the year, though that may be subject to change. You know, sometimes this may take longer than expected. And we are excited for the formation of the HardenBSD Foundation, which will open up new opportunities not otherwise available to HardenBSD. That's what they write. Okay, yeah, this is HardenBSD's efforts, and uh, we're sure to follow that along. 
Yep. Uh, over in OpenBSD land, uh, Philip Gantier and Brian Steele have added more mitigations against speculative execution CPU vulnerabilities for the AMD64 platform, specifically for Spectre RSB uh, and some of the earlier Spectre variants. This is do return stack refilling based on the return stack underflow discussion and its associated appendixes over at Google support. Uh, this should address at least uh, some cases of the Spectre RSB and uh, similar Spectre variants. Uh, more commits like this to follow. The refilling is done in the enter kernel from user space and return to user space from kernel pass, uh, making sure to do it uh, before unblocking interrupts so that a successive interrupt can't get the CPU to C code without doing this refilling. Uh, per the link above, it also does an immediate uh, or does this immediately after an M weight, apparently in case the low power CPU states of idle via M weight uh, will flush the RSB. And then there's a follow up here. Also do RSB refilling when context switching um, after a VM exit and when VM launch or VM resume have failed. So they've uh, extended this for the VMM hypervisor on OpenBSD. Following the lead of Clang and the Intel recommendations and do an L fence uh, after the pause in this uh, speculation stop path uh, for the retpoline and the RSB refill and the uh, melt over assembly bits. And then they also mitigate uh, G-2 for AMD processors. So they added mitigation G2 per AMD's white paper software techniques for ma uh, managing speculative execution on AMD processors. By setting a specific um, uh, machine register, LFENCE becomes a dispatch serializing instructions um, and tested with AMD Bulldozer and uh, Linux guests in SVM under uh, VMD. Okay. So we can only spec speculate, but I guess the other BSDs will also import some of this work uh, with uh, compatible. All right. Time for Beastie Bits this week with Harden BSD. Uh, we'll stop supporting 10 Stable on August 10, 2018. This is a short message. Uh, hi, everyone. Sean Webb writes, I'm curious. Uh, if HardenBSD has any users running 10 stable, please let me know if you are. And that, of course, got uh, pretty much no responses or not the ones uh, that yeah. would so warrant after, more. Uh, <laughs> 10 days of no response there, they announced that they're going to end support for it uh, on August 10th, uh, which would be less than a month after the uh, announcement there. Yep, and users are advised to upgrade to 11 stable prior to then, and then uh, get the new stuff that 11 provides. Okay, there's another GSOC report that has reached us. Uh, integrate libfuzzer with the base system, part two. So this is NetBSD. Remember the first part we covered uh, last time, I guess? Mm -hmm. And um, this, is, this is basically the second part of the project of integrating libfuzzer for the userland applications, which uh, they posted in an uh, earlier post on the NetBSD projects blog. Uh, after the preparation of the first part, they started to fuzz the userland programs with the libfuzzer. The programs they chose were exPR, ZSH, file, and ping. 
And after they fuzz them with lip fuzzer, they also tried other fuzzers, the American Fuzzy Lob, uh, Hong G Fuzz, and Radamas. Radamsa, sorry. Um, and apparently they got a bunch of interesting things out of that. So you can get more information in the uh, full blog post. Ah, <laughs> oh, so, wow. Yeah, There's a lot of stuff to hear about that. Yeah, get that. And the, the results that they found uh, mm-hmm. when they were That's fuzzing cool. each of the programs. So definitely worth looking at. Next up, we have a post uh, from Vermiden about ZFS boot environments, uh, which he presented at the Polish BSD user group. Uh, so he has his slides up here. Uh, as I just finished the talk, uh, the video from the talk is not yet available, but it'll be posted soon. Uh, back in 2012, uh, I thought that yeah, then available solutions, the manage BE script, could be written from scratch to imitate the BEADM command from Solaris. Uh, most systems uh, are to make use of uh, boot environments easier and more natural. To do so, uh, I had written a small native FreeBSD BADM in POSIX bin SH and uh, shared the results on the FreeBSD forums. With the help of the FreeBSD community, the BMT- BADM tool grew into the complete native uh, FreeBSD ZFS boot, manage- man- or boot environment manager, and later even the bootloader uh, was modified and uh, to support the selection of ZFS boot environments uh, created by the BADM script. Uh, so he says the attached PDF explains what boot environments are, why they're useful, what has been available in Unix before, um, what is available in Linux as an alternative, some practical examples of using it, and the history of the tools used for ZFS boot environment management. Uh, if you have the possibility and time to join the Polish BSD user group meeting, uh, you'd be impressed uh, at the presence of a lot of BSD professionals uh, and it's hosted in Warsaw at Wheel Systems headquarters. Uh, note that special guest uh, next week, uh, well, I think it'll actually be yesterday when this comes out, but if you're watching live, uh-huh. uh, August 8th, uh, George Neville Neal will be presenting about D-Trace at the Polish BSD user group. Ooh, hey, wow, that's what an honor to have. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, then there's another blog post by Michael W. Lucas about uh, second editions versus the publishing business. And um, it basically starts off, uh, he finds himself with an extremely publishing wonky moral dilemma and wants his reader's opinions. My apologies for the length of this post. Yeah, it's basically about, um, you know, having tech and academic publishers who will frequently release a new and updated edition of a book simply to goose sales to the book. In college, he uh, bought three different versions of the same calculus book because they changed constants in the exercises. Calculus hadn't changed, but the publisher gouged his wallet because they could. Uh, They had better use for that money, like getting desperately needed dental care. Yeah, so he's basically in the same situation now on the other side as a publisher. But um, he talks a bit more about, you know, his approach to that and uh, read through the whole blog post. It's well worth reading. Yes, but mostly he's wondering, you know, does a second edition of some of his books actually make sense? I think for a bunch of it, probably it does. Yeah, yeah, they're they're good books. But even if you only get the the first edition, it's uh, better than nothing. (laughs) Uh, Next up, we have a post uh, on from OpenBSD by Theodore Rat on Unveil. 
this mail includes a large diff of userland, which demonstrates how you can use the unveil system call. Um, additionally, some of you have uh, probably noticed that there is an unveil diff brewing uh, for Chrome in the ports tree. Others probably heard that unveil was specifically designed to uh, also satisfy Chrome's requirements. Uh, since Chrome already has pretty good uh, privilege separation and it's designed for file system containment uh, on other platforms, uh, we considered its requirements in the design of these mechanisms. So first off, you need this kernel diff to actually enable uh, the unveil call. If you remember previously, we talked about when it was committed and it just had a return zero early on so that it would always succeed. But if you just delete that, you can start playing with unveil now. Oh, cool. Yeah. Good stuff happening. The next item is also about OpenBSD. Uh, router advertisement daemon has been replaced by RAD. So this is uh, RAD as described on the G2K18 hackathon reports last week, remember, by Florian Opser, is now the only IPv6 router advertisement daemon in current following the removal of RT8ADVD. And advice... Yeah, I think uh, RAD is a much shorter and more useful name than RTADVD. Yeah, no tongue twister there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, advice on making the transition has been added to current. And uh, yeah, people should try that out and, uh, of course, use it. So thanks for writing that. Uh, also a reminder, on Wednesday, September 5th, the BSD user group in Stockholm will be having its third meetup. Yep. So once um, again, uh, they're going to meet at the B3IT offices in central Stockholm to talk about our favorite operating systems. Mark your calendars for September 5th, um, or, you know, and we'll run until we run out of things to talk about. Uh, I'll publish the program once it's more polished. If you have something you'd like to present, long or short, or just want to help out, uh, please let us know. Presentations will be in either Swedish or English. Yep. And there's already uh, so. a goodly number of people signed up, uh, so it should be a good meeting. Hopefully Excellent. some of you will go out. Yeah, if you're in the area, pay them a visit. And uh, last item that we have is the future of second Hammer last. 1. Yeah, well, well second to no, last. Uh, so changes to the NetBSD release support policy. Uh, NetBSD release engineering team is announcing a new support policy for our release branches. This affects uh, NetBSD 8.0 and subsequent major releases like 9.0 and 10.0. Uh, all currently supported releases like 6 and 7 will keep their existing support policies. Beginning with NetBSD 8, there will be no more teeny branches. So no more, you know, uh, NetBSD-8-0 and so on. This means that NetBSD 8 will be the only branch uh, for all of 8.x and there will only... Uh, be one category of releases derived from it, update releases. Uh, the first update release uh, will be 8.1, and next will be 8.2, and so on, instead of you know 8.0.1 and 8.0.2. Uh, update releases will contain security and bug fixes, and may also contain new features instead of only the bug fixes. Um, with this simplification of our support policy, users can expect more frequent releases, better long-term support, uh, like quicker fixes for security issues, since there's only one branch per major instead of many, uh, it'll be much easier or much less work, and so they'll get more of it done quicker. Also, new features and enhancements will make their way into binary releases a lot faster that way as well. 
Uh, we understand that users of Teeny branches may be concerned about the increasing number of changes uh, that each update will include. Historically, NetBSD stable branches like NetBSD 7 have managed very conservatively. Under this new scheme, the release engineering team will be even more strict in what uh, backwards um, uh, more strict in what changes we allow in the stable branch. Uh, changes that would create issues with backwards compatibility will not be allowed, and any changes uh, made that prove to be problematic will be promptly reverted. Mm-hmm. The support policy we've had until now was nice in theory, but has not worked out in practice. We believe that the changes uh, we're making will benefit the situation for the vast majority of NetBSD users. Okay. Yeah, interesting that they are thinking of similar things now that uh, support cycles have become shorter and shorter. But yeah, um, last item now. <laughs> the following is The Future of Hammer 1 by uh, Matt Dillon. Multi-master and multi-volume will take more time, but I think it will be able... They will be able to get master to multiple slave operation on Hammer 2 working soon, and that will be roughly as efficient as Mirror Stream uh, is for Hammer 1. There is still a ton of work that needs to be done on Hammer 2, but single storage support is rock solid, and Hammer 2's compression features are really nice. Hammer 2 also has working snapshot support, but it isn't automatic like it is on Hammer 1. Hammer 2 snapshots are writable, though, while Hammer 1 snapshots are read-only. So, so I guess up. they're kind of more like clones. In, in ZFS, yeah. Okay, before we give you your weekly feedback and questions, we should uh, mention our sponsor for tarsnap.com, which gives you online backups, but the online backups for the truly paranoid people. Because encryption, encryption is important if you store your stuff in the cloud, which Tarsnap Not just does. Encryption. It has encryption and signing. Because you need the encryption to make sure that nobody at Amazon or anybody who's snooping on Amazon can see your files. Uh, but also the signing allows you to make sure that the files you get back when you do a restore are have not been tampered with in any way. Yeah, uh, so you get your, exactly your files back without any backdoors or something attached. So that's also important. So Tarsnap will make uh, sure that you do your backups or at least do it in a uh, regular way with easy tools. Like if you know how to use Tar, then Tarsnap is just the tool to use. They do deduplication of your data so you have less to upload and it will compress the blocks before sending it out as encrypted data and you are the only person holding the key who can decrypt the data if you need them. Yeah, so make sure you don't lose the key because you're the only one that has the key. So if it goes away, then you're in trouble. Yeah, check out Tarsnap's documentation, how to get started, and uh, you will find that it's easy to to use as well as... Uh, It's pay-as-you-go, so you put money in and then use it so you never get an unexpected bill. Uh, It only takes $5 to get started. And Colin is very exact about the billing. It goes down to the Pico dollar. So there's no rounding up. So, you know, if you use 0.9 of a gigabyte, you'll be charged for 0.9 of a gigabyte, not one gigabyte. Yeah, because mathematics. And (laughs) yeah, check it out as a backup system for your daily use, hopefully. Okay, time for feedback and questions, starting with Rodriguez. Uh, That is a short question, uh, but even that is worth putting in the show. Um, it starts with, I have a question for you guys. 
As the world becomes more reliant on microservices and big data, what's the place for any of the BSDs in enterprise IT? ZFS has it as a master in storage, but where else can it excel? As always, great show. Thanks, guys. Uh, network stack, um, you know, and containers. You know, if you want to do microservices, you need a lot of separate services. And so jails work so much better than uh, most of the other container solutions for that. Uh, and then big data, you need systems that can scale. And, uh, you know, FreeBC has gotten a lot better at that recently. Uh, and as we saw in that uh, paper two weeks ago about schedulers, uh, the FreeBC scheduler is managing to mostly keep up with the Linux one, even though it's like one-tenth the size. Um, yeah, and so, enterprise, you know, you know the, the enterprise customers typically, they don't care what operating system is running on. They want to use applications. So it, there's certainly a place for the BSDs hidden somewhere or a little bit more visible somewhere. If they look at the, like in the about section, this server is running on, I don't know, FreeBSD. But I can concur that Alan's points were pretty valid. And from what I can tell in my big data environment, as long as the ports are available and they work great on the BSDs with the network stack that they have, at least for FreeBSD that I'm using, it's just great. And really comparing it with the, the Linux options with combined with ZFS and compression, that's totally great because enterprise IT is expensive and if you can save a bit more money on not buying the next hard drive so soon, that's a yeah, selling point. But in, in the end, uh, microservices containers are a lot lighter than VMs and if you, need, if you have big data, you need ZFS and PSD is the best implementation of ZFS. Uh, yep. So we hope that answers your question. And uh, yeah, for, thanks for sending that in. All the questions more, more. ZFS this week. Yeah, <laughs> it's the ZFS. You, Alan is already excited. Um, so Shane writes about ZFS mostly. Okay, so that goes, hi guys, keep up the great show. Yeah, we'll try. Uh, so this is about ZFS, but more of an intro share uh, or info share actually than asking for help. So he created uh, his Zpool back in 9.2. One or 9.2, then in his first test run of 10.1, had uh, memory issues, so put off upgrading until 10.2 and had issues since. While he couldn't pinpoint why it happened, it kept getting his entire memory wired, which is a bad situation that needs a reset. Uh, a reset that's, yeah, you probably want to limit the size of your arc if that's what's happening. Yeah, otherwise it will grab as much as it can get. Well, recently, uh, he finally re realized what he was missing. The memory used by the ARC, as Alan mentioned, uh, is wired. This means it doesn't get swapped out, and for a disk cache, this makes sense. The default for ARC underscore max is all RAM minus one gigabyte, or half of RAM, whichever is bigger. The maximum value that can be set for this is vm.kmm underscore size, which is a little less than all physical RAM. There's not a sysctl called vm.max underscore wired, which limits what the kernel can allocate as wired, and this defaults to 30% of RAM. Yeah, the that max wired setting is exclusive of the ZFS part, though. So what do you set this to, typically, on your systems? Uh, the max wired, I don't, I've never changed it before. Okay, the other one? Or are you doing the any Arc max, uh, It depends. If it's a file server, I'd leave it where it is. If it's running other applications, you might want to tune it down. I usually aim for closer to probably half of the memory uh, if I'm running other applications on the file server. Yep, to keep them some breathing space. Yeah, um, yeah but remember the ARC is um, of greedy, but also 
Yes. Um, so to control the the kind of uh, greediness of the arc, there's another sysctl that's only in eleven something and newer, uh, which is uh, vfs zfs arc underscore free underscore target, which tells the arc when the amount of free memory drops below this amount. Uh, which is in 4K pages, not bytes, but hopefully we'll have that fixed in 12. Um, it will start freeing off arc to, to make room. The other one that can cause this is if your uh, kern.maxvnodes setting is too high. Uh, if you're running into this problem because you have a lot of open files. Uh, if you run top and look at the arc line in top, if the amount in other is really high, um, then it's likely... Uh, the vnode problem and you need to lower the maximum vnodes huh interesting okay so he continues the issue comes from these two values existing independently with max underscore wired having 30% of ram then it gets used up and arc is using more than 70% of ram then we get a situation where the entire ram can be allocated as wired meaning Uh, our programs yeah it's not exactly how that works but anyway at, at least in his experience, meaning uh, the programs get swapped out and there's no room to swap anything back in. Yeah. Okay, this is more of an issue on lower RAM setups, but too much ARC means MaxWired doesn't need to get used up. So he has not seen MaxWired mentioned in any ZFS tuning write-ups. It seems like it should be considered for any ZFS tuning. No, yes. you probably don't want to change MaxWired, but you do want to change your ARC Max uh, and look at the uh, ARC-free target. Mm, that's probably a better way of uh, making those changes and also visible changes or yeah. so for anyone interested in this i have documented in bug 229.764 and there's also a patch under review in d7538 which improves the arc releasing memory when memory is full while not directly targeting the above issue it does help in preventing arc using all free memory okay thanks for that uh, insight and uh, life is next with ZFS, ooh, who would have thought, uh, less than 8 gigabytes. That goes, hi guys, I've been using ZFS on dozens of machines with 2 to 4 gigabytes of RAM, and it has served me very well for fringe machines such as BGP routers, Nagios monitors, backups, etc. On FreeBSD 10, I'm simply squash vfs.zfs.arc underscore max down to 256 megabytes, and all was well. I don't expect good disk I.O. performance, but they should be stable. So it's all tuning now of the ARC here, see? Uh, FreeBSD 11 appears to be completely ignoring ARC underscore max. The ARC will grow to the point where the kernel starts OOM, killing processes, the out-of-memory. Uh, obviously, I can't have the kernel OOM killing things like Nagios. Uh, although the kernel keeps running, I can no longer claim they're stable in terms of results. One could argue chaos monkey theory, but that leads to overly time-expensive designs for these use cases. The machines where I set this aren't weird, except they all have 2 to 8 gigabytes of RAM. They have small Z pools also with only 10 to 20 gigabytes referenced by file systems plus snapshots. They have no more than three file systems and only a modest number of periodic snapshots maintained by ZFS auto snapshot. One particular example has 10 gigabytes of reference data and 2 gigabytes of RAM. Another is a small backup server with about 1 terabyte of backup data and 6 gigs of RAM. Small, yes, but it worked fine on FreeBSD10.x. So he found this bug report, linked in the uh, show notes, about it and added to it. But the discussion has not borne any explanation except that FS needs memory. But more than than 8 gigabyte was never a requirement, only a recommendation for performance. So from following our blog podcast, 
he knows there's a lot of great work in the arc of late and wonders if the bug lies in something he can bypass and are there any recent features he can turn off or tune, such as the compressed arc? Don't, com- don't turn off the compressed arc. That might mitigate this problem. Or do you know who might have the expertise to look into this bug in more depth? Uh, he can actively try things and answer questions, although he's not a kernel developer by trade. Yeah, uh, so actually, if you follow the bug you referenced, uh, I've um, Josh Petzl and I have uh, been tackling this one uh, with the users that were affected, uh, and it was that he had the max vnode number had been turned up too high, uh, and while well, he set his arc max to 256 megabytes, 255 of those megabytes were being used for vnodes. Um, huh. By lowering his vex vnodes, he got that number down much smaller, and his arc managed to shrink uh, below his target of 256 megabytes and not have a problem anymore. So it was just a lot of cached open files, basically. Ah, okay. So that was the issue. Yeah. But yeah, uh, we, we're we still see... uh, need to look a little closer into that one on why um, the vnodes are not being reclaimed more aggressively to prevent that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, the arc is generally well tuned for even low memory yeah, in particular, situations. This one is more an interaction between FreeBSD and ZFS than uh, the arc in particular. It's not really the arc's fault. Mm. Yeah, so they thought about something when they implemented that. And yeah, even in low memory situations, ZFS can still be used. Uh, last but not least in our feedback and questions is Wayne with ZFS versus EMC. That goes. Admittedly, uh, he hasn't really looked into it at all yet, but in an episode or two back, during the talk about the New York Stock Exchange going down for an hour, you mentioned that they were probably running some sort of EMC. I hadn't heard of EMC before. I'm still pretty new. Can you go over some of the differences between the two, ZFS versus EMC? What would make someone choose one over the other on a purely technical standpoint, ignoring recognition or anything like that, unless he just completely misunderstood or misremembered what was said? Uh, so EMC is the name of a company uh, that makes storage appliances. They're bought by Dell. Um, I don't know that much about their particular appliances other than the fact that they are expensive. <laughs> yeah, so with ZFS, and, and you not can... ZFS. <laughs> yeah. So there's not there's no ZFS as far as I know in the EMC. They have their own no, way of managing the storage. And and with ZFS you can basically build this these kind of systems uh, with commodity hardware. And most people are okay with that or just don't want to spend that much money. But with EMC you get typically the the usual enterprise support and uh, care and updates. Um, it's depending on what kind of um, storage system you're using whether you want to build it all yourself then look at zfs or do you want to just pay someone to build you something or provide you a certain service then look at emc or other storage vendors so there's no there's no emc file system like zfs so one is the file system the other one is a company that provides file system storage or yeah they have a couple of different products i think and i don't know which one but anyway yeah i'm sorry my snarky comment confused you (laughs) no no just do a bit of uh, research and you can, can find yeah, uh, um, different. I differences. don't know if they're still marketed as EMC or if they're more integrated with Dell now. Yeah, I think it's Dell EMC, Isilon, or Dell EMC, uh, but there are certain uh, yeah, well, products Dell, they have. Yeah, so EMC bought Isilon, which then got bought by Dell, but 
The Isilon products are different. That's a clustered file system, whereas EMC is more like a SAN. Um, so they're not the same thing. Mm. Uh, Isilon is FreeBSD powered. That yeah, that of course they have their uh, FreeBSD but, uh, developers. Uh, yeah, there is a heavily modified version of UFS designed for clustering uh, rather than uh, being related to something else. Yeah. Remember, ZFS is not a clustered file system, uh, but still has some compelling features. Yep. Okay, I think that's it for this week. Uh, thanks for listening, as always. And if you have something for our show, either feedback and questions or something we should cover BSD-related, then send it to feedback at bsdnow.tv and uh, we'll make it appear in the future episode. Yes, and we look forward to answering your questions and uh, talking about the stories you tell us about. <laughs>